This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. We've got two lengthy programs tonight, so as Chris Cuomo would say, let's get after it. Our first presentation is Dragnet, starring Jack Webb, and the episode, The Big String. Sound off for Chesterfield. Chesterfield, the only cigarette in America to give you premium quality in both regular and king-size brings you Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A man walks into your office and tells you he returned to his home to find that his wife was gone. She left no indication where she was going. Paul Play is suspected. Your job, find her. The modern way to sell cigarettes is the Chesterfield way. Premium quality in both regular and king size. And we're the only one that does it. Premium quality in a cigarette means the world's best tobaccos, the best ingredients, the best cigarette paper. Only Chesterfield gives you this premium quality in both popular sizes. King-size Chesterfield contains tobaccos of better quality and higher price than any other king-size cigarette. That's certainly important to every king-size smoker. Of course, it's the same fine tobacco as in regular Chesterfield. There is absolutely no difference except that king-size Chesterfield gives you more than a fifth longer smoke. Yes, the modern way to sell cigarettes is the Chesterfield way. Premium quality, both regular and king size. Chesterfield is much milder. Chesterfield is best for you. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department... You will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, July 7th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on my way into work, and it was 4.58 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. John, that you? Yeah. Been here long? No, I just got in. Sure, beautiful day, isn't it? Yeah, summer's really here, isn't it? This daylight saving time makes a difference. Got a lot more time, seems like. Made me think about my vacation. Well, you're doing a couple of weeks, aren't you? Yeah, first part of August. Uh-huh. Figured out where you're going yet? Yeah, Faye and I talked it out. You know, Joe? Oh, what's that? I think maybe I had Armin figured wrong. Armin? That's your brother in law? Yeah. Mm hmm. This year, Faye and I got to talking where we're going to spend the vacation. Faye wants to go up to Big Bear. I'm saying Mexico. Yeah. You know, I figure a little fishing. I hear the yellows are hitting pretty good. The what? Yellowtail. Oh, yeah. You don't fish much. No, I don't yellow. fish at all. You know. Well, they're supposed to be hitting pretty good, but Faye can't see Mexico. And darn if old Armin doesn't chime in and say he thinks Mexico's a great idea. Well, that's swell. Yeah. Tells Faye all about the beaches down there and how good the food is, all about the air, healthy. You know, really sells it. So that's where you're going, huh? No, Faye didn't buy it. On the mountains. Well, fishing's supposed to be pretty good up there, too, isn't it? That's what I read, I guess. I, I suppose so, but... Oh, Armin, how do you like that guy? He sure surprised me. Yeah, maybe he's going to work out, huh? Yeah. I'll get it. Okay. Homicide Friday. Yes, sir, it is. I beg your pardon. Could you talk a little louder? Yes, sir. Uh-huh. 
Yes, sir. Well, when was that? I see. When? Yes, sir. What was that address again? All right, I have it. Yes. Yes, sir, that's right. We'll be right out. Right. Bye. Well, we got one to roll on. Kidnapping out in Hollywood. The man on the phone gave his name as Henry Wagner. He said that he'd come home from work and found that his wife was gone. He said on the phone that he'd found a note demanding ransom and cautioning him against calling the police. 5.22 p.m. Frank and I arrived at the house on Temple Hill Avenue. We parked the car down the street from the house and went up to the front door. Frank would remain in the car for a few minutes and then follow. In that way, if the kidnappers were watching the house, they wouldn't be as likely to know that we were working on the case. I rang the bell and waited. Yes, you're the police? Yes, sir, that's right. My name's Friday. Oh, hello. Come in, please, quickly. I don't want them to see you. Who's them, sir? The kidnappers. They might be watching. I don't know what I'm going to do. Terrible thing to have happen. Just doesn't make sense. All right, now, sir, if you just try to calm down and tell me what happened here, we're going to start right from the beginning. All right. I got home from school about 4.30. Myra wasn't here. I looked at the house for her, figured, like you said on the phone, that she might have gone to the store. When I couldn't find her, I started looking for a note. That's when I found the ransom demand right there on the coffee table. You said you got home from school, is that it? Yes, I teach political science at the university. Well, when did you last see your wife? When I left this morning, about 7.30. I have a class at 8. Have you talked to her since? Yes, I called her about 1.15. Did everything seem all right then? I mean, did she seem to be upset, anything like that? No, no, everything seemed to be normal. Did she say if there was anyone with her when you talked to her? No, if there was, she didn't give any indication of it. I see. I know that this isn't a hoax, if that's what you're thinking. I know that Myra wouldn't do a thing like this. She's a serious woman. I guess you might say that she had a rather dull sense of humor. No, I know that she wouldn't do a thing like this as a joke. Well, no, sir, it's not that. I'm just trying to get all the facts here. I wonder if I could see the note. Yes, I left it over here on the desk. That'll be my partner. I'll let him in if it's all right. Wagner, this is my partner, Frank Smith. How do you well, do, Mr. sir? Wagner. How do you do? I'll get the note. Well, I'd rather you wouldn't handle it anymore, sir. Oh, all right. You going to try to get some fingerprints from it? Is that right? Well, that's the idea, yes, sir. Do you read it, Joe? Yeah, it's made up of newsprint. It's been cut out of the paper. Looks like one of the morning papers. Yeah. I'll read it to you. It says, put $10,000 in fives, tens, and twenties in the shoebox. Make sure the bills are unmarked on July 8th. Drive up Deer Canyon Drive at 10.30 p.m., five miles past the turnoff. You'll see a white string across the road. Drop the shoebox out of the car, go on back home. Your wife will be returned. Don't tell the cops. If you tell anybody, we'll kill your wife. Deer Canyon Drive. Yeah, you know, it's up above Laurel. Oh, yeah. $10,000. Do you have that kind of money, Mr. Wagner? No, sir. I don't know how I'm going to raise it. I have to, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. Have you noticed anyone lately that's been in the neighborhood here? I mean, anybody loitering around without any reason to be here? No, I haven't. Of course, you must understand I'm not home a great deal. But Myra didn't say anything about it. I'm sure she would have if she'd seen anybody like that. You and your wife have any enemies that do a thing like this, would you know? None that I can think of. Do you have any household help? I beg pardon? Household help. Anyone that comes in to help your wife with the housework. You know, a day maid, something like that. Well, there's Betty Jo. She comes in once a week to clean up the house. When was she last here? Let me see. That was Saturday. That's her usual day. Saturday, I guess it was then. Didn't you see her last week? No. You see, I had to go out by Pomona this last weekend. Series of lectures I wanted to catch. I left early Saturday morning, didn't get back until late that night. Did your wife go with you? No, she stayed at home. She had a little touch of the virus and figured she'd better stay at home and take care of it. Are you sure this is the right thing to do? Maybe I should have handled this myself. No, sir, you did the right thing. I wonder if you could give us a description of your wife, Mr. Wagner. Why? You aren't going to tell anyone else about this, are you? No, sir. The information will be handled in the usual confidential manner. Oh. Well, I guess you men know what you're doing. All right, sir, if you'd just give us a description, if you could. Well, Myra is about five feet three. I guess she weighs about 130 pounds. How old is she, sir? 42. Just turned 42. Birthday last month, June 14th. How about the color of her hair? Sort of an auburn, I guess you'd call it. A little, little gray up in here, along the sides. Would you know what she was wearing? No, I wouldn't have the slightest idea. I don't know her clothes well enough to be able to look at what's in her closet and tell you what she had on. How about Marks? I don't think I understand. I'm sorry. I mean, any visible birthmarks or scars, anything that might make it easier to identify her? No, I don't think so. Oh, wait a minute. There's a very small scar just under her ear right here. A couple of years ago, Myra and I went fishing up in the Sierras. Myra got a trout fly caught there. When they took it out, it left just a very small scar. But I don't think you'd be able to see it unless you were really looking for it. Anything else outstanding about her? No, there isn't. I wonder if we could have a photo of her. Do you have one? Of course. Why don't you give us the address of this Betty Joe? Surely. 
I think Myra kept it in the phone book. I'll look for you. Do you think they'll really do it, officer? Kill Myra? Well, we're going to try to stop him, sir. I don't think so. Well, how about the money? Should I get it together? Not a lot of time if I have to meet them tomorrow night. We'll take care of that. Here's the address. Thank you, sir. I don't know what I'll do if they hurt Myra. Just don't know. It's odd, isn't it, Sergeant? What's that? Myra and I have been married for 22 years. I guess I always just took her for granted. Haven't been separated at all during that time. Just took her for granted. Yes, sir. I guess you have to lose something before you know what it's worth. 5.43 p.m. We asked Mr. Wagner not to touch anything in the house. We told him that after his wife had been returned and our men could move safely about the neighborhood, the house would be gone over for physical evidence. Two men came out from the office and a stakeout was placed on the house. The note was taken downtown and photographed. Dean Bergman lifted several clean prints from it. However, comparison with those taken from Mr. Wagner eliminated them. The maid, Betty Joe, was contacted, but she could tell us nothing. In the meantime, Sergeant J. Allen of the crime lab prepared a shoebox as directed by the abductors. Dummy packages of money were placed in the box, and the container was wiped clean of all fingerprints. The area where the meat was to take place was staked out. The following morning, Wednesday, July 8th, Henry Wagner went to teach his classes at the university as usual. Late in the afternoon, he returned home, and at 9.45 p.m., he got into his car and left the house. I'd gotten into the back seat of the car earlier, and I kept out of sight. In an undercover unit behind us, Frank, Lieutenant Gorham, and Gillen Finis kept us under observation in the event that we missed contact with the kidnappers. 10.26 p.m., we turned off Benedict Canyon onto Deer Canyon Drive. I hope I'm doing the right thing. I can't help thinking of what they might do to Myra. Well, try to take it easy, Mr. Wagner. We know how you feel. Everything that can be done has been taken care of here. That's what you've been telling me for the past hour. Doesn't make me feel any better about what's happening. Can you still see that car behind us? No. I think they dropped back when we turned off Benedict. Uh-huh. How's it look up ahead? Can't see much. Dark. How far off the canyon have we come? About four and a half miles. You got your box right there ready to throw it out? <laughs> Yes, sir. Right here on the seat. All right, now remember, when you toss it out, try to lift it by the strings. Right, I'll remember. I just hope we're doing the right thing. I'll never forgive myself if anything happens to Myra. $10,000 just isn't worth it. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. There it is. String across the road. See anybody around it? No, so dark. I can't see anything but what's in front of the car. How close are we to the place here? About 50 or 60 feet. All right, now take it slow. Don't give any indication that you aren't doing exactly what they told you to. And remember, don't handle that box. Hold it with the string. All right. We're here. I'm throwing the box out. All right, now close your door. What now? Go up the road a little, and then turn around and drive back. Act like everything is just the way they told you to handle it. All right. Take it easy now. We can turn around here. All right. You see anyone move for the money? No, not yet. Maybe when I get turned around. Just a second. The driveway here. All right. It's pretty dark back there. All right. Can you see anything at all? Nothing there. I don't see anyone. All right. Now just keep driving. If there's anybody to pick up the money, it'll look better if you don't cause any trouble. I don't know about all of this, Sergeant. Somehow I still can't get the idea out of my mind that we've done the wrong thing. That they know all about it, that they're going to kill Myra. Now, there's no reason that they should know that there's anything wrong, Mr. Wagner. From what they can see, you're doing just what they told you. They got nothing to tell them any different here. But what if they found out? What if they know that you're working on the case? What if they know about it? They might kill Myra. I'd never forgive myself. I never should have told you about it. I should have taken care of it myself. They'll kill her. I know they will. They'll kill her because you're working on it. The way it is now, she hasn't got a chance. No, you're wrong there, Wagner. Hmm? The odds are on her side now. 10.45 p.m. Henry Wagner and I left the meeting place. About a mile down Deer Canyon Drive, Wagner dropped me off, and then he started down Benedict Canyon Drive and continued on home. I met with Frank, Lieutenant Gorham, and Sergeant Gill Encinas, and we started back on foot. We cut off the road and waited on the hill overlooking the meeting place. Frank told me that they'd seen no activity on the road while Wagner and I were making the meet. We moved in closer. 11.30 p.m., no sign of the kidnapping. The moon came up and we could see the white string across the road. In a patch of manzanita, we could see the shoebox containing the dummy packages of money. We waited. Midnight, 1.30 a.m., still no sign of the kidnapping. 2.30, 4, 
At 4.45 a.m., the sun came up and Frank and I left the area. Lieutenant Gorham and Sergeant Jill Encinas continued to stake the meeting place. If the kidnappers had been in the vicinity, we'd missed them. Our only course now was to wait for them to contact Henry Wagner again. 8.15 a.m., Frank and I checked out and went on home to take a shower and get something to eat. At 11.12 a.m. Thursday morning, we checked back into the office. Rough night, huh? Yeah, there's nothing to show for it. Anything from Gorman and Encinas? No, I don't see anything. There's one thing I found out. What's that? I need a heavier coat for nights. Yeah. Saw an ad in the magazine. Advertise those English duffel coats. Look real good. What? Duffel coats. Wore them in the North Atlantic during the war. You know, Joe, they're real heavy. Got a hood that comes up. Should be real warm. A hood? Yeah, you know, like a monk wears. When you aren't wearing it, look just like a collar. When it gets cold, you raise up the little gimmick, and there you are, warm as anything. You know, Frank, somehow I just can't see you in there. Yeah? Well, I noticed you weren't any too warm last night. Next time we do duty like that, I'm going to be ready for it. Yeah. Just like a monk. I'll get it. Homicide Friday. Yes. Oh, yes, Mr. When was that? Uh-huh. Yes, sir, right away. Well, that's it. Huh? The Wagner woman. She's home. <laughs> You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. Friends, you'll remember some months ago, we read you our first report, the six-months report on the effects of smoking. Then more recently, we read you the eight-months report. Now, here is the latest one. The full ten-months report confirms again. No adverse effects on the nose, throat, and sinuses of the group from smoking Chesterfields. This from a medical specialist who is making regular bi-monthly examinations of a group of people from various walks of life. Forty-five percent of them have smoked Chesterfield for an average of over ten years. After ten full months, the specialist reports he observed no adverse effects on the nose, throat, and sinuses of the group from smoking Chesterfield. That's the report. Buy much milder Chesterfield, regular or king size. The cigarette that's best for you. a.m. Frank and I drove out to the Wagner home. The officers on stakeout told us that Mrs. Wagner had walked into the house at about 11 o'clock that morning. As soon as she'd gotten inside the house, she collapsed. The family doctor had been called, and she was treated for shock. Other than some scratches on her arms and around her face, she was unharmed. The officers told us that they'd been unable to interrogate her so far. We talked to the doctor, and he told us that we could talk to her until the sedative took effect. Honey, these are policemen. They want to ask you a few questions. What? Police officers, honey. There's Mr. Friday, and there's Mr. Smith. Oh, yes. They want to ask you some questions, dear, about the people who took you. Oh, all right. It won't take very long, Miss Wagner. That's all right. I, I want to help you get them. All right, now if you just tell us how it happened. How it happened? Yes, ma'am. Sergeant, you have to do this now. Maybe later when she's rested. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Wagner. We haven't got much choice here. We'd like to get to the people who did this. If we wait until later, we might not be able to get them. Yes, I didn't think of that. Well, if the doctor says it's all right, go ahead. Miss Wagner? Yes? Do you know the people who did it, the people who took you? No. you never seen him before? No, never. All right, now, could you just tell us what happened? I guess so. They came to the door about 2.30. Who were they, ma'am? Well, I just saw a man. Later, when we got into the car, there was a woman, too. All right, go ahead. They told me that Henry had been in an accident, that he'd been hurt, that he was at the hospital. Said they wanted to take me to him. Yes, ma'am? I didn't know any different. I went with him. I thought that Henry was hurt. I didn't know any different. You have to do this, officers. She's home, safe. That's all I care about. That's all that's important. Why don't you let her get some rest? Then you can talk to her. Talk as much as you want to. But please, you can see what this is doing to her. Yes, sir. Now, look, this isn't any easier on us. We've got a job to do here, like we had when she was gone. We know how you feel, but we'd like to get to those people. It's all right, Henry. I'm all right, dear. Where'd they take you, ma'am? First, I think they were going to take me to a house near here. I, I didn't notice the street, but it was near here. I'm sure of that. Then when we got near there, I... I knew that something was wrong, that they weren't going to take me to Henry like they said. I knew it then. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I told them to let me out of the car, said that they'd better let me go. Mm-hmm. The woman, she was in the back seat with me, said for me to keep my mouth closed. I tried to get out the door, and she hit me. Then the two of them got into an argument. The man started to yell at the woman that it wasn't any good, that they'd better forget the whole thing. And the woman said that they'd gone too far for that now, that they, they had to go through with it. 
Uh-huh. Well, then they put a blindfold on me, tied my hands and blindfolded me, and then they started to drive. Well, at any time, did either of them use a name, you know, in talking to each other? No, I don't think so. At least if they did, I don't remember it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Miss Wagner. Well, I, then they started to drive. I couldn't see where they were going, but I know that they headed out the Arroyo Seco toward Pasadena. I could tell from the way we went. Then I heard the woman talk about the turnoff to get on the Seco. Right then, the man told her to shut up. Yes, ma'am. We drove for quite a while and then stopped. They made me get out and took me into a house. Did you have any idea where you were at the time, ma'am? No, I didn't. Go ahead, ma'am. Well, they took me into the house and put me in a room, tied me up. I couldn't move, couldn't do anything. They locked the door, and I could hear them arguing in the next room. The man was really telling the woman off, said that she was a fool, that she'd really botched the whole thing up. I see. That night, they brought in a plate of food, told me it was time to eat. All there was were some prunes. That's what they fed me all the time I was there, prunes. Never did take the blindfold off. Was there anything at all that would let you know where you were? Oh, a couple of things. They're probably kind of silly, but maybe you can make something out of them. What's that, ma'am? Well, there was a clock that was in the room where they had me, one of those chime clocks, told every 15 minutes, like Westminster chime. Yes, ma'am. I don't think it was a very big clock. Chime sounded small. Mm-hmm. Then there was a train. Trains? Yes, every once in a while I'd hear trains going past. Sounded like they were near, maybe a couple blocks away, not much more than that. But do you think that you could give us a description of the man and woman, Ms. Wagner? Yes, I think so. First, I was so upset with thinking that Henry was hurt that I didn't notice, but I think I can describe them for you. All right, ma'am, that'll be fine. There's one thing, though. What's that? I'd be positive if I saw them. Twelve noon, we continued to talk to the Wagner woman. She gave us a description of the man and woman who had kidnapped her and a description of the car they'd used. We called the information into the office and a local and an APB were gotten out. We ran the descriptions through R&I, but we got no make. 2.45 p.m. As one of the possibilities for identifying the locality described by Mrs. Wagner, Frank and I left the house and drove to the office of one of the milk companies in the city. We talked to the driver that handled the area in which Mrs. Wagner said the kidnappers were going to stop. He couldn't identify the man and the woman from the description. We checked two more milk companies, and on the third, we got a tentative identification. The driver of the route told us that we could be asking about a Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Harper, he thought. He gave us their address, and Frank and I drove out there. On the way, we called the names into R&I and had them make a check for us. They said they had a record on a Thomas Harper who answered the description. He'd served time in San Quentin and in Folsom Penitentiary. He'd been sentenced both times for armed robbery and ADW. There was no record on Mrs. Harper and no warrant at the present time for her husband. 5.57 p.m. We better try it again, huh? All right. Probably aren't in. Mm-hmm. The car park down the street here could be theirs. Checks on that description we got from the Wagner woman. Uh, I think somebody's coming. Yeah, what do you want? You Thomas Harper? Yeah, that's right. Police officers would like to talk to you. What about? Just like to talk to you. All right, come on in. Who is it, Tom? Cops. What do they want? Say they want to talk. I don't know what about. Just a routine investigation. What are you trying to kid? What do you mean by that, Harper? Somebody's done something, you need a pigeon. I got a record, so I'm right for you guys to lean What's on. What's the matter? You got something to worry about? Not a thing in the world, but I know you guys, you're going to try. What do you want, anyway? You people tell us your activities for the past four days? What for? Just tell us, will you? Yeah, tell us. You got an angle where you wouldn't be here. You're trying to pin something on us, and you know it. You want to tell us what you've been doing? You haven't left the house at all. Can you prove that? Prove it to who? You? You got no right to come in here and ask a lot of questions. She's right. You haven't got any right to do that. Either you pull us in or you get out of here. All right, Harper. Getting ready to leave anyway. We'll see you later. Yeah, let's go, Frank. Right. We better call the office and have the house staked. As soon as Ms. Wagner feels better, we'll have her see if she can make an identification here, huh? I don't think that'll be too hard, Joe. Hmm? Found this bill from the gas company on the table in there. Yeah. House in Pasadena. Harper's mugshot had been pulled and sent to the Wagner home for identification. Mrs. Wagner was still under sedative. 7.15 p.m., Frank and I drove out to Pasadena. We got in touch with the police department out there, and two officers were assigned to accompany us to the address on the gas bill. The house was unoccupied, and there were advertising papers strewn all about on the lawn. With the officers, we entered the house and went through it. 
In some of the rooms there were pieces of furniture, and in the living room of the house we found a mantel clock that chimed on the quarter hour. On an end table we found a ball of white string that looked like the same type that had been used to mark the meeting place up on Deer Canyon Drive. In one of the back bedrooms we found prune seeds scattered around on the floor. A stakeout was arranged on the house. We contacted the men watching the Harper residence and found that the suspects were still there. 9.56 p.m., Frank and I arrived back at the Harper home in Hollywood. The lights were out and the house was dark. Frank went around to the back of the house. Yeah? What do you want this time of the night? Did you guys ever give up? All right, Harper, let's get dressed. We want to talk to you downtown. You tying a pinch to me? You called it. For what? Kidnapping. You're out of your mind. Come on, get dressed. Who is it, honey? Cops say we kidnapped somebody. What? Buzz has an idea we kidnapped somebody. You're kidding. Trade not, Ms. Harper. You better get dressed, too. Anybody else in the house? Yeah, we take in board. Don't get smart. Where's that door go? Bedroom. Just the one bedroom here? That's right. We're roughing it. Just the kitchen over here? Yeah. All right, come on. How about the bath? In there. All right, we'll all go. Come on. All right. Let's go back to the kitchen. This door go out the backyard? You're a cop. You figure it out. Okay, Frank. Everything all right in there, Joe? Yeah, fine. You ain't kidding about this kidnap thing, are you? No, nope, let's go. What makes you figure it might be us? You got a house in Pasadena? Why do you ask that? Have you got one? No. You're lying. Property records in Pasadena say you have. We checked the house. Matches the one we're looking for. All right. That's right. We got the woman you kidnapped. She's identified your picture, you and your wife. She couldn't identify me. I haven't got a record. You ain't taking me no place. Frank, get out of my way. Hold it. Hold it right there. All right, come on. On your feet. I'll shake. He's clean. Hands behind you. I told you what had happened. I told you we should let her go right away. I told you. Oh, shut up. You and your bright ideas. Ten grand easy. You and your bright ideas. Well, look what it got us. Look, Buster. You didn't yell when you thought of getting your hot little hands on that dough. You were all for it then. Well, we lost. What do you want me to do about it? Break down and ball? Should have known. Should have known from the beginning. I had nothing but trouble with you from the start. Always wanting something easy. Always wanting big money. Never satisfied. That's the trouble with kids. Bad losers. Great winners, but bad losers. Well, you're a big boy now. You lost. That's all there is to it. Stop whining. Easy for you to say. If you get through with me, I'll be in for life. You got no record. She has now. Let's go. <laughs> The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On November 10th, trial was held in Department 98, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Now, here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you, George Fenneman. Friends, only the modern cigarette, Chesterfield, gives you this scientific evidence on the effects of smoking. No adverse effects on the nose, throat, and sinuses of the group from smoking Chesterfield. And only the modern cigarette, Chesterfield, gives you premium quality in both regular and king size. Now, I know Chesterfield is best for me and best for you. Buy them regular or king size. Either way, they're much milder to give you all the pleasure the modern cigarette can give. Thomas Fenton Harper was tried and found guilty of kidnapping. He was sentenced to life imprisonment in the state penitentiary, Folsom, California, without possibility of parole. His wife, Alice Mabel Harper, received a like sentence and is now in the California Institution for Women, Corona, California. Ladies and gentlemen, would you give a few dimes to help a child out of the smallest prison in the world, an iron lung? Well, that's what you're doing when you join the 1953 March of Dimes. Remember, crippled children are depending on your help. So give your dimes and your dollars to the 1953 March of Dimes. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Virginia Gregg, Jonathan Hull. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Sound off for Chesterfield. 
Either way you like them, regular or king size, you'll find premium quality Chesterfields much milder. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet transcribed from Los Angeles. Stay tuned for Fibber McGee and Molly coming up very shortly here on Theater of the Mind. First, another shameless plug from Frank Proctor for you to support me in November 2020. That's where men grow mustaches or a full beard, as I'm doing, to raise money to help in men's health for many areas. So if you just go to Movember Canada, type in the name Frank Proctor, my little face will show up, and I'm looking scruffier and scruffier, I'm telling you, as the days go by. So any amount would be really appreciated. Thank you very much. Stay tuned. We've got Fibber McGee and Molly on standby. Time now for Fibber McGee and Molly and the story of hot water storage. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. of Johnson's Wax for Home and Industry presents Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie, with music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. just been reading a long letter from a serviceman's wife, and I wish I could read every word of it to you. Those of us who still live in our own homes with our own furniture can't possibly realize the discomforts and extra work many of these service wives have to put up with. This lady writes that the first thing she and her husband do to make an unattractive furnished apartment clean and livable is to give everything a good shining coat of Johnson's wax. Here are her own words. When I was back home, I never appreciated the expression, her house just shines, because all my friends' houses shone. Now I know that until my own things come out of storage, the Johnson's Wax shine on the furniture is my biggest link with the quality and cleanliness I hope for someday. It adds dollars to the appearance of any atrocity it meets, and a fairly presentable piece will respond in a way to make any girl sing. Please, Mr. Wilcox, keep right on telling them. The families I've moved in after are people who haven't yet heard you. Thank you, service lady. I'll do my best to get everybody to use Johnson's Wax. is usually a bald-headed man who sells hair tonic. His customers are usually men who like their hair and the conversation cut short around the ears. Like the man in the chair right now, a Mr. McGee of Fibber McGee and Molly. So I'm writing President Roosevelt a letter, see? And in it, I'm saying to him, Dear Mr. President, look, kid, I got great ideas. Yeah, now, look, Nick, you told me how... Then in my own handwriting, which I am dictating to my wife because I don't write so somebody can read it, including me, <laughs> I'm going on to say, Look, I say, mm-hmm. the Army is needing plenty of ladies for a nursing. Is not? Yeah, but... So, also, we got thousands of guys who are too small on the eyesight for the draft, or maybe they got... Seven toes on one feet or something. <laughs> so I'm saying, why not take the rejectors and make them into guys for giving sick people the pills? <laughs> yeah, but if you don't mind, Nick, I Of just... course, so far up to now, President Roosevelt, he's done standing me the answer. Yeah. Which is all right. Mm. He's just as busy as me, I guess. <laughs> Maybe I better send a telegram to the Manpower Commission and say, how about a shampoo? How can you give the Manpower Commission a shampoo? That question was not for the commission. You, I'm asking. Oh, I need a shampoo? Everybody's needing a shampoo at the regular periods of the interval. Are you different? No, I guess not, Nick. Go ahead. Only after you shampoo it, put some dressing on it quick, because 
I got a natural part in my hair that runs from one ear across my head to the other ear. See, it looks kind of funny until it's plastered <laughs> Yeah, smart my hair. <laughs> After shampooing, we all... Hey, wait a minute. Uh, how much is a shampoo? Fifty cents? Seventy-five. What? Six bits just to wash a guy's hair? Those are the ceiling prices, kiddo. That we got posted on the wall because nobody can reach the ceiling to pull them up. Why, so... that's enough. <laughs> Why, that's a dirty jip. Seventy-five cents to whip up a lather on a guy's skull and rinse it off again. Why, you scissor bill. <laughs> you high-handed, low-minded brush bandit. I got a good notion to report you to the OPA. Now, wait a minute, Mr. McGee. Let's not lose our temperature just because... I won't can... wait a minute. Here's the four bits from my haircut, and you can take your shampoo and... The haircut was 75 cents, too. What? Another six bits for cutting off not enough hair to make a toupee for a tadpole? You got a lot of nerve. I'll wash my hair myself. Let me out of this chair. Why, George, any time you get me into this nest of thieves again, you'll have to threaten me more than with a razor. Well, just put the 75 cents on the counter, then, kid. Okay, Mr. McDonald, you're next. Step in the chair. Mm, six bits for a shampoo. That's the dirtiest way to get clean I ever heard of. <laughs> so long, Dillinger. Six bits for a shampoo. Why, I'd shampoo the Dome of St. Paul's Cathedral for six bits. Compared with that guy, Jesse James was just a scared kid with a dry water pistol. I'll get his life. Six bits for a simple little shampoo. My gosh, I used to get my car washed for 80 cents. You must think I'm some kind of a yokel to sit still for a kind of a... All delight. right, dearie, all right, relax. You're home now, safe with Mother. Hey, Molly, you know what that Nick the Barber tried to do? That ham-handed scout gardener tried he to... He tried to charge you 75 cents for a shampoo. Yeah. And you stormed out of the shop and you're going to shampoo it yourself. Yeah, 75 cents for... Hey, how'd you know? Well, the barber just called up. I lit the hot water heater right away so the water would be hot and you could shampoo your own head. Oh, so he called up, did he? What'd he want? He wants his apron back. Well, he... Huh? Here. Let me unpin it for you. Oh, my gosh. There. Boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. No wonder everybody looked at me so funny. Why, you look like a flat-chested Mother Hubbard, dearie. Hmm. I'll have uh, Beulah drop this bib off at the barbershop on her way home. Now sit down and relax. Gee, boy, am I embarrassed. Wearing that big apron all the way home. You must have really been angry, huh? Angry? One more word out of him and I'd have shoved his barber pole down his noisy old throat. Oh, dear. Six bits for a shampoo. Why, that's outrageous. I don't think that's so unreasonable. Oh. I always pay a dollar and a half myself. Though it's worth it not to have to sit there and hear the patriots talk about how much revenue the government is losing by closing the racetracks. Well, my gosh. Hello, I Mrs. McGee. Hello, Mr. McGee. Hello, Alice. Hi, Alice. You've been out in the wind, Mr. McGee? Your face is awfully red. <laughs> well, he had a little argument with the barber, Alice. He came home hotter than a depot stove. Well, my gosh. Six bits for a shampoo at that barbershop. Don't you think that's ridiculous, Alice? Seventy-five cents? Yeah. Oh, it certainly is, Mr. McGee. They can't make any money at those prices. I don't... I don't know, Alice, why he doesn't wash his hair when he takes a shower anyway. Except that he's usually singing so loud he couldn't hear himself ask himself if he wanted to. <laughs> oh, well, I never hear him. But lately I've been so busy with my charts, I don't hear anything. What charts, Alice? You studying navigation so you can find your way home between the boys? <laughs> hey, that's not so bad. Between the boys. You see, if you spell it B-U-O-Y-S, it's a play on words. Ain't funny, McGee. <laughs> I was kind of pleased with it myself. <laughs> what charts, Alice? Oh, uh, my astrological chart. Oh. I was casting some horoscopes for some friends. I'll do yours sometime. Mm. Are you a Capricorn? Am I a Capricorn? I'm an elk and a legionnaire, and I'm oh. mighty proud of both. <laughs> no, no, I mean, what month were you born in, Mr. McGee? Well, uh, he was born shortly before Thanksgiving, Alice. And all white meat he was, too. <laughs> He's a Scorpio. What do you mean I'm a Scorpio? A Scorpio is a big crab with a stinger in his stern. <laughs> and if you mean that I... No. <laughs> no, no, McGee. Uh, Scorpio is merely the sign under which you were born. I was not born under a sign. 
I was born five miles west of Peoria on top of Kickapoo Hill. <laughs> oh, no, Mr. McGee. Now, look. There are 12 different signs of the zodiac, see? Is that so? Yes. And everybody is born under the influence of certain stars and planets, depending on what time of the year you were born. I think McGee was born during an eclipse of the moon, Alice. <laughs> he throws such a big shadow. <laughs> No fooling, Mr. McGee. It's very interesting. I've started to study astrology. Hmm? For instance, your horoscope for January warns that people born under this sign must not let themselves be imposed upon financially. Aha! You see, Molly, that barber was trying to impose on a Scorpio financially. <laughs> I knew all of it. Is Scorpio a good sign, Alice? Oh, Creeper is one of the best, Mr. McGee. Yes? Yes, but you must do as your horoscope says if you want to be happy. Yeah. You must control your temper, make allowances for other people, and follow through on any projects you have started. Like oh. washing your hair. Oh, is he going to wash his hair? <laughs> I just washed mine. That's why I'm wearing this towel around my head. Oh, my gosh, is that a towel? <laughs> I was just about to tell you I thought that was the best-looking hat I ever saw you wear. <laughs> Oh, did you wash your hair, Alice? Oh, I just finished. I'd have taken a bath, too, but the hot water is all gone. What? The water I was planning to use for my shampoo? Now, just a darn minute, Alice. What's the uh, idea? Uh, uh, Scorpio? <laughs> Control your temper. Make allowances. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mr. McGee. Oh, forget it, kid. <laughs> That's okay. Far be it for me to stand between you and Glamour. Use all the water you want. However... However, what? However, if she don't want her pretty little neck wrung, she better light that water heater before I count to ten. One, two, three. I'm going. Billy Mills from the orchestra and fascinating rhythm. like a woman. With three of them in the house, a man hasn't got a chance. Oh, now listen. Men are just as bad. Huh? When Uncle Dennis was staying here, he was always taking a shower. Oh, I didn't begrudge him, though. The only way he ever took water was through his skin. <laughs> well, my goodness. Oh, your water's probably hot enough now, McGee. Okay, I'll run up and have my shampoo before... Hey, tell Beulah to see that nobody turns off the heater for a while. I'll tell her right now. Oh, Beulah! Beulah! Somebody ball for Beulah? Yeah, I, I'm going to shampoo my hair, Beulah <laughs> He got a little irked at the barber, Beulah Thought he was being overcharged, so he's going to do it himself Yeah, him. But that poor old barber, this show was hard giving folks a shampoo <laughs> They just wax their fingers to the bone <laughs> 
Are you inferring that I have an ossified skull, my good woman? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but my cousin, he's a tonsorial artist. I hear a lot about how hard he works. <laughs> well, Mr. McGee doesn't need a tonsorial artist. He had his out in 1928. <laughs> Tonsorial refers to barbers, Molly. Oh. It's from the Greek, tonsolasi marabatorium, meaning the quickest way to a man's scalp is to take a shortcut. <laughs> well, for goodness sake, you university man, Mr. McGee. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he isn't, Beulah, but he has an unusually well-rounded background, though. Yes, and I can see that. <laughs> You know what that big razorback wanted to charge me for a shampoo, Beulah? Hmm. 75 cents. Hmm. Imagine that. Six bits for a gob of soap suds and a dash of slamil number five. That <laughs> <laughs> don't sound like no overcharge to me, sir. Barbers give you a real good shampoo. My cousin says, phone me in one day, tell him you ought to charge at least a dollar. For our customers? No, ma'am. For barbers. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. My barber's named Nick, and if he can't nick you with his razor, he'll nick you with the price list. Well, personally, I think barbershop prices are very reasonable, McGee. My cousin thinks so, too, ma'am. And he's the head of his class in barber college. Get a degree, Beulah? Yes, a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. Oh, for goodness sake. Doctor of philosophy? No, ma'am. <laughs> Physiognomy is de-whiskered. <laughs> <laughs> well, this isn't getting my curly locks beautified. See that nobody turns the heater off for a while, will you, Beulah? You want me to light it for you, sir? Oh, it is lit, Beulah. No, it ain't, ma'am. Excuse me. What do you mean? What? Well, I see the tank was full of hot water a little while ago, folks, so I embraces the opportunity to wrench out some window curtains. Oh. You mean it isn't hot now, Beulah? Right now, sir, it's as cold as a walrus's knees. Mm-hmm. Well, light the heater again, Beulah, if Mr. McGee still wants the shampoo. You're doggone right I still want a shampoo. Oh, I don't know why I need any hot water. The number of times I've been in a lather today, I ought to be as pure as a bookstore in Boston. (laughs) He ought to be as pure as a bookstore. (laughs) Love that man. This is a fine state of how do you do? How do you do? Fine. How are all the... Look, now, this... <laughs> this is no joking matter, Molly. Gee whiz, a man can't get enough warm water in his own house to steam a monocle. If I ever build another house, I'll build it in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Well, the barber's probably just as perturbed as you are, McGee. He thinks you stole his apron. Well, it takes a thief to catch a thief. I'll tell him when he can get it back. And he should live so long. <laughs> Hand me the phone. Certainly, Scorpio. Here you are, and wear it in good health. Thanks. Hello, operator. Give me Nick's Barbershop at 14th and... Okay, Mert, how's yourself? Oh, dear. Is, eh? What's that, Mert? Your brother. Dropped 1,500 feet out of a what? Heavenly days, McGee. Was he killed? No, just amused. <laughs> He's a movie out operator. Dropped 1,500 feet out of gone with the wind, and nobody even noticed it. What's that, Mert? Okay, I'll call later. Mine's busy. Well, the water ought to be hot again half an hour or so, and you can get the shampoo over with, which will make me very happy indeed. Make you happy? My gosh, I've never been so exonerated in all my life. Everybody's stealing my hot you water. You don't mean exonerated. You mean exasperated. Go on. Exasperated is when your time is up. Like when the time limit on a contract has exasperated. Nah, that's expiration. I thought expiration was when a guy put on a pair of fur pants and went looking for the South Pole or something. Are you thinking of exploration? Well, then what does exonerated mean? Exonerated is when you have been found not guilty of something. Well, who's been guilty of snitching all my hot water? Me? <laughs> no, sir. Everybody else in the house has been the one. Oh, hello, Mr. Wilcox. Hello, Molly. Hiya, pal. What are you scowling at? I'm living in a nest of water pirates, Junior. <laughs> you think this was the Mojave Desert, the way everybody steals water? Well, uh, somebody explain the situation to me. I came in late. Well, uh, he thought 75 cents was too much to pay the barber for a shampoo, Mr. Wilcox, so he came home to do it himself, and every time he gets a tank full of hot water, somebody uses it. Yeah, the way people glom onto it around here, you think it was the dew off the last rose of summer. Hey, look, pal, you're getting very irritable lately. Huh? Last week, you were raving and ranting because nobody trusted your hand-picked mushrooms. Now you're sour-pussing around because you have to wait for a shampoo. 
What's the matter with you? Well, gee whiz. <laughs> McGee? Mr. Wilcox is right. Your temper is getting as ragged as a $2 retread. I can't help it. It's hereditary. If you think I'm nervous and irritable, you should have known my great-great-grandfather. Who was he irritable? Why? Well, he was just impatient. Couldn't wait for letters to be delivered and answered. Couldn't wait for anything. Kept saying, why don't somebody invent the telephone? What's everybody waiting for? <laughs> What's that guy Bell doing anyway? Why don't he get with it? <laughs> they say Grandpa was a terror. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that bad temper should have smoothed out in three generations, pal. What if you do have to wait a few minutes for some hot water? What's 20 minutes or less in a lifetime? Tell him what can happen in 20 minutes or less, Mr. Wilcox. Oh, you don't have to tell me. Why, well. in 20 minutes or less, pal, a Johnson's glow-coated linoleum dries to a perfect protective finish. Yeah. Restores new life and luster to the faded and worn surface. You gave him that opening, Molly. Whose side are you on, anyway? <laughs> Say, listen, sweetheart, we're all on the same side. Aren't you happy with our product? Well, no, not too happy. It don't spell anything backwards. <laughs> I, uh, look, Al, I was merely pointing out that 20 minutes or less can be a happy little period of time. Think of the housewife who pours a little Johnson's glow coat out on her tired old linoleum and spreads it around with a long-handled applier. Then think how the world brightens for her in just 20 minutes or less as the glow coat magically gives her kitchen floor a new lease on life. You ever spend 20 minutes or less in a dentist chair, Waxy? Certainly. And well spent, too. You were? No, it was. <laughs> but look, I didn't come in here to tell you how to improve the shining hours, pal. Uh, Nick sent me. Who? Nick, the barber. He said to tell you to keep that bib you walked out with. Well, that was very kind of him, I'm sure. Yeah, he said Fibber could keep it till spring when he comes in for his next haircut. So long, now. <laughs> Oh, he said that, did he? If he didn't give the best haircut in town, I'd never darken his hand towels again. <laughs> Bye, George. Hey, you think the water's hot again, Molly? Well, it should be, dearie. And this time, I don't think anybody will cheat you out of it. Well, they better not. The first mug, male or female, that lays a hand on a hot water faucet in this joint is going to get the... Come in. Oh, hello, Dr. Gamble. <clears throat> hello, Molly. Hello, Mushmouth. <laughs> Hi, Doctor. Hey, you look kind of bushed. What you been doing? Treating the centipede for fallen arches? Oh, same old routine. Get to bed at 3 a.m., phone rings at 4.15. 5.30, a new little taxpayer starts squawking as loud as a full-grown one. <laughs> at 7, I'm back in bed. At 9, I'm back at the hospital trying to be patient with patients who are trying my patients. Well, you certainly look like you could use a good night's sleep, Doctor. I wish my father and mother had been grizzly bears so I could sleep till about April. As it is, I'm in and out of the hay like a Nebraska pitchfork. <laughs> Don't you even get time to shave? Haven't for two days. Just stopped in here because my car broke down the next block. Take them half an hour to fix it. You know what? What, Doctor? I'd give my right eye. That's the one with the evil leer in it. <laughs> for a hot shower and the use of McGee's no doubt dull razor. Got any hot water in the house? Why, uh... Well, uh... Uh, hot water? <laughs> yeah, hot water. You know, that stuff you toss a bone in to make soup. Why, certainly, Doctor. As a matter of fact, we just heated a tank full. Yeah, you see, uh, I we... see you are two lovely, charming people. Mm -hmm. And now, if you'll excuse me, I shall run upstairs and swab the frame. If you hear a rusty clatter, pay no attention. It'll be my pores opening. <laughs> well, say it, McGee. Yeah, and go back to vaudeville. Yeah, the King's Man with the Whistler's Song. Whistle all the day, you will find the sun is shining while you whistle your blues away. Like a symphony of the birds and the bees and the sigh of the trees in the morning. Whistle all day long, the clouds on high will say goodbye and lazily roll along. Whistle loud and clear, all the world will be bright if you start the day right in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> 
Handkerchiefs. I hope you don't mind. Where's McGee, Molly? Out in the kitchen, Doctor. You feel better now? My dear, I feel so much better that with a little luck I can get through the day without folding up like a summer resort card table. <laughs> Thanks for the hospitality. Not at all, Doctor. And the man came to the door and said your card be ready in about ten minutes. Ah, it's a wonderful world we're living in, isn't it? As I told one of my patients who had sat on a darning needle, why worry? Everything comes out all right in the end. <laughs> What's McGee doing? Well, he's just sitting there with a shotgun across his knee. A shotgun across his knee? Yes. What's the idea? Going to flush a covey of quail out of the icebox? <laughs> no, he's just making sure that... Uh, well, it's a long story, Doctor. And if it's about your husband, I'd like to hear it. He's a fascinating little character. Well, it started in the barber shop. The barber was going to charge him 75 cents for a shampoo, and McGee thought it was too much. He would. McGee thinks no more of a quarter than I do of my third cervical vertebra. Yes. And he came home to give himself a shampoo. But Alice used all the hot water, and he waited and heated some more. And then Beulah used all the hot water, and he heated some more, and... I get it. You got it. <laughs> well, my epidermis is more important than his scalp, if only because there's more of it. But what's this about the shotgun? Well, after you took your bath, he lighted the heater again. Now he's sitting there guarding it with his shotgun. He says anybody who steals this batch of hot water is going to be so full of lead... You could use them to write a letter to your Aunt Minnie. Well, I haven't got an Aunt Minnie, but my sister Gertrude would be happy to get a postcard. <laughs> tell McGee I'm very sorry that... No, no, I'll tell him myself. Where's the kitchen? Through this door... No, no, here. no, please don't. What's the matter? That's the hall closet. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, sure. Uh, will you excuse me while I smoke a hot water pipe of peace with your bitter half? Well, I'll do better than that, Doctor. I'll come with you. Right this way. You know, it really has been exasperating for him, Doctor. And you know how he is when he sets his mind on doing something. I do indeed. He follows through like a broken garter. <laughs> Shall we knock? I do. Who is it? <laughs> your best friend and severest critic. Or, reading from left to right, your wife and your physician. Okay, come in. Oh, hi, Doc. Feel better? Infinitely. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry I used your hot water, my boy. In extenuation, I can only plead my ignorance of the situation. I told him how many times you'd lost the hot water, dearie. No, no, that's okay, Doc. But believe me, I'm making sure of this tank full. Anybody lays a hand on this water is going to wind up as full of holes as a German treaty. Is your car fixed yet? Well, it will be any minute. I just dropped back here to say goodbye and thank you for a delightful dunk. Hmm. Well, I'll go out with you and see you get started all right, Doc. I don't think anybody will swipe this water now. I've warned them enough. McGee, now, please be careful with that gun. Okay. I'll just set it down here in the corner. Oh, heavenly days, McGee. Look what you did. What a neat third act curtain, my boy. Oh. You blew a hole right through the hot water tank. <laughs> Why, this is impossible. The gun wasn't even loaded.
night since you had your shampoo, McGee. Yeah, it sure does, doesn't it? And we're sorry we had to make you keep your barbershop open after hours, Mr. Nick. Forget it, sweetsies. I couldn't lock the door till I got out of here anyway. Good night. Good night. Good night, all. <laughs> this is Harlow Wilcox, speaking for the makers of Johnson Wax Finishes for Home and Industry, inviting you all to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week as I uncover more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.